0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's get into it. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we are this week. If you've been with us for a while, you know we've been working our way through the New Testament letter of Ephesians, and we are in uh, midway through chapter 2 today. If you're using one of the The Bible's in the chair underneath you, or in front of you, underneath the chair in front of you. I think you can find that text on page 688 or 689, and we're just working our way through Ephesians. Um, We'll take a little break uh, on Christmas Day. By the way, Sunday, uh, Christmas Day falls on a Sunday. Those of you wondering, yes, we'll be here. Um, no Jedi mind tricks. We're not trying to be spiritual. We're not taking role. We're not going to, you know, we're not creating a varsity, a junior varsity. I'm just saying, you know, we'll be here worshiping. And then, um, and then we will probably pick up in January in Ephesians. So um, uh, we're just working our way through this beautiful letter. Here's something I hope you recognize about kind of what we do when we gather publicly. There is a real sort of unspectacular uh, intentionality to what we do when we get together. We're not trying to do performance-driven stuff. I'm not trying to wow you with any, you know, kinda uh, great sermon. I, I don't have any notion that you're gonna remember anything I say really next week or the week after. But we wanna just sort of faithfully spend our time together plodding through the scriptures and becoming more familiar with God's word. And I think that as, as we do that, two things, Lord willing, will happen. People that are not yet believers in Jesus will hear clearly what the Bible teaches, which is what they need. They don't need an environment that sort of you know, makes Christianity seem more functional for life here on this earth. And then, oh yeah, by the way, you've got to accept Jesus. They need to hear about the gospel and the good news of what God has done in Christ and everything that flows from that. And then Christians need to hear this, this teaching of the scriptures and they just need to slowly, methodically make and build their life around it, and so that, that's really what we're doing here. There's nothing, nothing particularly spectacular, um, kind of like an option offense that, you know, army runs and can't gain any yards in. Well, hopefully, we're going to gain some yards today. Um, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I actually spoke to myself this morning, and I said, don't, don't, let that, don't let that junk you up today. But anyway, this is what Charles Spurgeon said, the great Baptist preacher back in London in the mid-1800s. Uh, one of my historical heroes, he said, I am content to live and to die as the mere repeater of scriptural teachings. I think that should be the heartbeat of every preacher, um, of every teacher, and anybody that stands up before God's people and opens the Bible. I'm content to be the mere repeater. To live and die as the mere repeater of scriptural teachers. There's nothing particularly fantastic about any point I have today. But there's something really beautiful about the text that we're going to look at today. So let's do this. Let's pray. And then I'm, instead of reading the whole text, I'm going to read and stop and explain and read and stop and explain. And then we're going to end on three truths that I think in particular that we can draw from this passage, okay? All right, well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for your word. It is living and powerful and completely and true. Completely true. It is, it is uh, the power that your Holy Spirit uses. It is, it is life-giving to cause dead hearts to come back to life. It doesn't just save, it also sanctifies. It builds up, it encourages, it illuminates, it gives wisdom, it convicts, it guides So, Father, I pray today that we, as your people, would come and be freshly encouraged, illuminated, and that our hearts would be stirred with love for what you have done in Christ on the cross and how that touches every aspect of our lives. And Lord, for my friends that are in this room that are not yet believers in Jesus, I'm so grateful that they're here. I pray that what we speak about today would be understandable to them. And I pray that you would give them a new heart. I pray that you would resurrect them from their bondage to sin. And that you would cause them to see Jesus. And that they would turn and trust in him. I pray that you would do these things for your glory and for the joy of your people. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so here we are midway through Ephesians chapter 2. If you remember last week, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, one of the most important paragraphs in the whole Bible, it speaks about how God has reconciled man to God, how sin has alienated us from God and how God has solved that problem. The sort of bulk of the next portion that we're going to cover today, which is 11 through 18, speaks sort of on a global sense how God has how he has taken the alienation between now man and himself and other Jew and Gentile in particular and how he has extinguished that. And then next week we're going to look at just the last three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 and look at really how this sort of plays out in the church and what ramifications that should have for us. So let me read in verse 11. We'll stop after a little bit. Ephesians 2 verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands remember that you were at that time separated from christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world okay so what's going on there you got to you're not real familiar with kind of the Bible and especially the Old Testament, let me just kind of orient you. The Old Testament is, is really God's dealing. It's the story of creation and, and, and the fall. But more specifically, it's also God's dealing with humanity as he creates all people and then in particular calls out and sets his love on one particular man, Abram, who then becomes Abraham, who becomes then the father of... The nation of Israel, father Abraham had many sons. And <laughs> I don't even know that you've been through the Sunday school song. And it's, many sons had father Abraham, and I am one of them. All right. Anyway, uh, you, you guys didn't go to Sunday school, obviously. <laughs> and so the Old Testament is this is 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 the story of God's people, the Jews, the Hebrews, the nation of Israel, and how God has given them special blessing and privilege. Not so that it would stay with them, but so that it would, through this people, God would bless all the peoples of the earth. And in particular, he identified or he marked his people in one way through circumcision of the males in the nation of Israel. And so that became a real distinguishing characteristic between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so there were only two types of people in the world. There were Jews and there was everybody else, Gentiles. In fact, you're either ethnically Jewish or you're Gentile. If you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. And so what's going on here is Paul is now in this context in the Ephesian church, and he is speaking to people who are primarily Gentiles that now have become Christians. And he's speaking to them and saying that, remember, you've become a Christian, but remember remember there was a time when you were sort of outside of this this people of God's status, and, and you have to understand we're at a very unique time in redemptive history here. You've had a, a thousands of years of God working specifically through this one group of people, not just because He loves this one group of people, but because the way God decided to love the whole world was to call for Himself a people who would be holy and righteous and be a sort of priesthood for all the nations, right? And so we're in this time period where now God has transitioned. He has transitioned from this covenant with this group of people now to all peoples in Christ. And Paul is now speaking to these Gentiles, saying to them now that you're part of the people of God through your faith in Christ. But remember, he's he's actually telling them, remember what it was like for you before you became a Christian and there was this, this no hope in your heart. There was no, no peace. There was, You were without God in the world. And so he says to the Gentiles, remember your hopelessness before you came to Christ. And I think that's a, a very good thing for us to do today as well, that we be people that remember what, what our life was like before we trusted in Christ if we're Christians. And then he continues in verse 13. He says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, meaning the Gentiles, who were without the law, who were without this special privilege of God being the people of God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, verse 14, for he himself is our peace, meaning Jesus, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This would have been just this was absolutely scandalous language for a Jewish person to think about or for a gentile to hear. I mean the 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 enmity the the angst between Jews and gentiles in that day was heavy. I mean I think it's more intense than anything we can even imagine here. I mean even maybe even stronger, I think probably certainly stronger than any sort of racial tension in the United States that we know of sort of in our context. I mean, Paul, actually in Acts 21, gets, he gets almost beaten to death for bringing a Gentile Ephesian into the temple, right? I mean, he's, 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 he's being persecuted just for associating with gentiles and there's this enmity there's this angst there's this strife between Jew and Gentile and now Paul is saying that Christ's work on the cross is so revolutionary that he's breaking down that that strife between the Jew and the Gentile this would have been i mean this would have been incredibly countercultural for Paul at this time and for these hearers at this time and how does he do this he says then in verse 15 by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. So here's the real crux of this paragraph of what Paul is saying. Remember in the first 10 verses he says that he has broken down the separation between God and man by atoning for sin by Jesus' work on the cross, and what Jesus did on the cross, he forgave us our debts, he canceled. our our sins and he made us alive in Christ and now Paul is saying that now that that redemption that reconciliation now also works between the Jew and the Gentile but here's how Paul says that Jesus does this he does this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinance so this law that the old testament Jew was called to observe which became a sort of dividing line between them and everybody else jesus comes and he actually he abolishes that and there he breaks down this sort of middle wall so there's this picture this kind of great wall of china and inside that that compound you have the jew who is marked off by the old testament laws and regulations that god clearly gave them to identify them as his people and the reason he's giving them those laws is not because he's trying to make their life miserable but he's trying to make them holy so that they will be uh, his priests his his pure people to the world and now this verse says that jesus in his work on the cross breaks down abolishes that law breaks down that wall between the jew and the gentile now here's what we got to do we got to be careful here because doesn't this contradict what some of us who may be more familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, that I have not come to abolish the law, but I've actually come to fulfill it. All right, so let's slow down here. This is a real kind of lesson in how we should read the Bible. W- what do we do when two verses seem to sort of contradict each other like that? You've got Jesus in Matthew five seventeen saying, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then you've got Paul here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, saying that Jesus breaks down the divisions between humanity, between Jew and Gentile, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances so that he would create in himself one new man. Well, there's two possible solutions. Um, some theologians in the history of the church, and I think there's some merit in this, They say that they would break the law of God into sort of three categories. So when we look at the Old Testament law, this I think will be helpful for some of you, uh, is when we look at the Old Testament law, some theologians um, have sort of broken it down into three categories. So you have more than just the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. You realize that? In fact, if you added them all up, there's over 600 regulations that sort of govern or command God's people to do certain things. And... Uh, theologians especially the reformers had I think what is a helpful sort of compartmentalization of the law although I don't think we can press it too far is that the law can be broken down into moral law like God's 10 commandments or the ceremonial law which is laws that God gives to how the Jewish people were to atone for sin like the sacrificial system and then civil law how Israel is supposed to live as a nation how they're supposed to govern themselves and so you've got moral law ten commandments things that are issues of the heart don't kill don't steal don't covet you've got sacrificial ceremonial law how they're supposed to do sort of sacrifice for the atonement of their sins once a year and then you've got civil law kind of the governing law of israel sort of what you would call like you know our law today like don't speed or don't you know um, know, pay your taxes things like that and what some theologians think is to sort of think about the seeming tension between these two verses is that uh, what Jesus has come to fulfill in, when he speaks in Matthew chapter 5 is that he's coming to fulfill really the sacrificial system, that Jesus comes and he fulfills all of the requirements of the law. Whereas what Paul is speaking about here is that he comes to abolish, abolish that. The civil law and the ceremonial law are no longer in effect. Well, is that really what's going on here? I don't think so. I think that what Paul is speaking about here is that he is not contradicting what Jesus has said. But what he's saying is that Jesus comes to abolish the part of the law that condemns us. You See, here's the whole point of the gospel is that God has called us to be a holy people. God has given us this law and we can't live up to it not only can we not live up to all of the 613 regulations in the Old Testament we can't even not hate our neighbor like we can't do it we can't not hate we're we can't do it and the point of this is that the law comes and shows us our futility it identifies our sin and it renders us guilty before God and in fact the law which is the holiness of God, cries out for justice and condemnation. And all of us, every person, whether you were Jew or Gentile, all of us are under that law. All of us are helpless to make ourselves holy and right before God. And here's what Jesus comes and does. He abolishes the call for condemnation that the law of God rightly rightly demands on all of us. Let me read to you Colossians chapter 2. Verses 13 through 15, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, sounds a lot like what we read last week in 1 through 10, having forgiven us all our trespasses, listen to this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, or he abolished it, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And so in this sense, what I think Paul is saying is that Jesus has abolished the condemning aspect of the law. Jesus didn't come and just say, well, you know that Old Testament thing, that was good while it lasted, but forget about that. Grace. Now everybody just kind of believe in me and do what you want. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the law was good and it showed us how really unable we are to make ourselves right with God. In fact, nobody could fulfill the law except for Jesus. And here's what Jesus does. Let me read another verse in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. In conjunction with Colossians 2, listen to this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Listen to verse 4 now. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So let me kind of summarize and put together Romans 8 and Colossians 2 with... Ephesians 2 verse 15 here and what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus came to live out perfectly what we could not live out which is the holiness of God as it's given to us in the law. And so Jesus comes to satisfy the demands of God's holiness by, as Romans says, becoming the righteous fulfillment of the law. And on the cross, Jesus isn't just dying to forgive us of our sins. He's also, as 2 Corinthians 5.21, He's also dying to give us His righteousness. So Jesus' perfect life is so important because His perfection, His character, His righteousness, His obedience is given to His people. And so when God sees us, He sees law-abiding righteousness because of Jesus' righteousness that is given to us and so what's going on here what's being abolished is the jew's ability to say hey we have the law and we're more righteous than these scummy pork-eating sabbath-breaking gentiles and so they're propping themselves up on this law and saying we're better than them because of this law and the and the work of christ on the cross abolishes that and it also abolishes any sense of, of self-justification by the Gentiles, who say, "Oh, those religious freaks! Look at them—they're just—they're looking down the end of the, their noses at us, and so they're obviously wrong." And look, we—we, you know, we'll just try and be relatively decent people. And the cross abolishes that as well. See, there's no hope for anybody. Whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, a religious person, a non-religious person, a Jew, a Gentile, anybody. The point is, is that Jesus abolishes, abolishes any sort of framework by which we try and make ourselves right before God. And by which we then look down the end of our nose at anybody else. And that's what, that's what makes this, this gospel so beautiful is that it touches every aspect of our human relationships and so jesus then takes peace makes peace between the jew and the gentile the religious person and the non-religious person and every group of people that might have strife between each other in verse 16 it says he says he makes peace at the end of verse 15 and might reconcile us both to god in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility I think there's two ways we can look at this hostility. He kills the hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. Between every sort of group of people that might have division between them. And he also kills the hostility between God's holiness and our sin. I think one of the more fundamental things that you really understand when you begin to understand good biblical theology is that God's not just sort of some kind of kind of like jolly saint nick figure up in heaven who who just kind of hits the control alt delete button and says oh well that old testament sure was some good stories for sunday school and now let's just all hold hands and sing kumbaya and kind of do whatever you want to do i think that's the way a lot of christians sort of instinctively just sort of view god as sort of out there to help them you know not particularly holy but more kind of kind and jovial like a grandfather that just wants you to sit on his lap and give you candy when your mom's not looking that's not a biblical view of god god's holy and the most loving thing that god can do for his universe is to maintain his holiness and to be pure and beautiful and altogether lovely and if he were to cheat on his holiness if he were to if he were to give way to his holiness that would be an incredible act of of really unlovingness towards his creation because for god to not be holy would everything would fall apart and what this verse says is that Jesus killed the hostility between God's holiness and our sin by atoning for the demands, by satisfying the demands of God's holiness on the cross and making us righteous. You see? See, so the message of the gospel isn't so much that God sort of stoops down to our level, although in one sense he does in the incarnation, but as he stoops down to our level in Christ, he brings us up to his, and he erases. He kills hostility. He kills sin. He satisfies his holiness and actually gives it to us. That's, That's incredible. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Isn't that interesting? Both Jew and Gentile needed peace. They needed preach. So even those that were near needed the gospel. So even church kids that grow up in the South need the gospel. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the Trinity, and right there in verse 18, you ever have somebody knock on your door that's from some cult, and they argue about the doctrine of the Trinity? Just ask them to explain verse 18. Just open your Bible to Ephesians 2, verse 18, and say, I see three in one, right there. For through him, Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I see three in one, there, but we could go on forever on that. But let's, let's continue. Three truths as we end this, three truths that I see in this text. Number one, Jesus creates a new humanity and redefines identity. The main thrust of this text is that not only has Jesus reconciled us to the Father, but he's reconciled us to each other, to the people that we hate most. That are in Christ. I'm going to be intentionally kind of provocative here. When I say this. We are more connected eternally and spiritually. And the things that really matter. To our Arabic Christian brother. Than to our unbelieving American siblings. We are more connected to our Arabic Christian brother than to our unbelieving American sibling. The things that I have in common with a Christian on the other side of the world or the other side of town who is of a different skin color and culture than I am, are a million times more eternally important than the things I have in common with my unbelieving blood relative who grew up with me in the same culture. Friends, that's how radical the gospel is. Now, I don't say that this truth shouldn't distance us from our unbelieving blood relatives, but it should move us nearer here in this life to our spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ from every tribe, and every tongue, and every nation. Now, I I don't think this is a huge problem. It's certainly a problem still in our city and in our culture, ethnic divide and racism. I don't think it's a particular problem here in our church. Uh, But maybe it is, and sort of suppressed in the hearts of people in this church. Maybe, I mean, I just think about kind of just the subtle ways it plays out. You know, a group of white people, and they're talking about maybe a group of black people, and you ever notice how white people, when they're talking about black people, they, like all of a sudden they whisper? And I, I, I'm white, I'm not black, but I don't know if black people, when they get together, even if they're Christians and they talk about white people, that they kind of sort of like a little wink-wink, nod-nod, like, man, those white folks. I mean, I, do, the, do, do, do you, see, you see that when we let sort of even those little sort of things linger in our heart, that, that it just absolutely runs counter to the truth of the gospel? But but I think it's I think it's I think it's actually much deeper than that. So we can just say, oh yeah, man, preach against race and we're all for that, blah, 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 and we, we get that. But I think it's actually even deeper than that. See it's because because the gospel doesn't just aim at some exterior thing like racism. It aims at the heart and the divisions of the human heart. I, I just wrote down some things that I think just divide us. One is just there's there's no rooms for camps for cultural camps in the body of Christ, whatever they may be, right? So there's no room for, for kind of, you know, socio-demographic sort of economic camps in the body of Christ. There's no room for, for theological camps. I think, I think if there's anything that we're vulnerable to at this church, that may be one of them. Like, I think we... We want to be people that take the Bible very seriously. We want to be people that take doctrine very seriously. And I, as a pastor, preacher, teacher, I want to think about stuff. I want to learn from people that have gone before me. And so I think it's a good thing to study doctrine. I think that gives life. I think that clarifies issues. But with that sneaking behind every rock that is close to some sort of theological perspective is the sin of pride. And the moment that a church like us that wants to take things seriously and sell books that I think are theologically solid in a resource room and consider stuff and quote cats that are dead and think about different stuff, is behind that lurks a sort of condescension towards people who don't think along the same way that we do. And do you see that the gospel comes to abolished to dismantle that framework that we build ourselves up on because see, it's the same thing the jew was sort of climbing up on this scaffolding of the law of god by which by the way they couldn't even fulfill so that they could look down on the gentile and some little 22-year-old punk who just starts to understand reform theology climbs up on, you know, Calvinism or, or John Calvin's Institutes or John Piper's latest book just to look down the end of his nose on somebody who hadn't even heard of those things. And that punk who's up on the scaffolding, he, he's no more living righteously for God than anybody else. You see, and so do you see how every little camp just becomes kind of a, an opportunity for us to prop ourselves up with Pride. And we've got to be careful about those things, man. We've got to be careful about them. Because what we do when we do that is we build back the very machinery that Jesus destroyed, which is pride and self-righteousness. Tim Keller, um, in a sermon on this passage that I listened to, last week which was so good i thought about just hitting play on it and sitting down and letting you guys listen to that um says that the gospel what jesus does it redefines our identity in it he says that the gospel reshuffles our identity deck reshuffles our identity deck so i'm not you know an american who used to be from california whose dad's side is from italy who, you know, was in the army, who lives in this particular side of the town, who goes to Cross Point, who's a believer in Jesus. I'm a Christian. Now that doesn't nullify our differences. I think our differences become sort of it becomes sort of the color in the lines that gives beauty to the mosaic of what God has done in us. But the moment our instinctual instinctual thoughts about who we are go straight to some sort of thing other than what God has done for us in Christ, our identity deck is it's not ordered the right way. It brings us to the second of the three truths, and I'll move through these next two more quickly. Jesus demantles the merit machine of self-righteousness, which I alluded to just a moment ago. Jesus not only removes the condemnation of the law by living it out perfectly and fulfilling its demand, both for the Jew and the Gentile. But now he takes away our ability to prop ourselves up by our strengths, right? And in that Christian culture, man, don't we just, I mean, don't we become a Christian so often and then, and then you know, we'll, we'll just judge everybody else by our strengths, and we'll look down the end of our nose. We will have blind spots to our weaknesses. But man, if we don't cuss, if we don't go to rated R movies, and if we do this, man, we, we, we can look down the end of our nose. And we, 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 we realize it's all grace that saves us. But now as we compare ourselves to everybody else, we want to kind of build back the very thing that Jesus abolished. We want to build back the wall that he broke down so we can sit up on it and look down at other people. And usually, very conveniently, we only sit on parts of the wall that we can actually kind of do in our own strength. And the things that we're terrible at, oh, we we'll forget, what, what, what? I mean, oh, what are you talking about? And, and, and so the point of what I think this passage would teach us is that when Jesus abolishes and kills the hostility, he breaks down this middle wall. He's breaking down the machine that we all have in our hearts that we want to prop ourselves up on. Jesus dismantles the merit machine of self-righteousness and, and humbles all of us that come to God the Father not because of what we do but simply because of what Jesus has done. And thirdly and finally, God doesn't just pardon sin. He actually brings His people peace in Christ. I think about four or five times he mentions there, Paul mentions how Jesus brings peace verse 14 for he himself is our peace verse 15 Jesus creates in himself one new man in the place of two so making peace verse 17 twice he preached peace to those who were far the Gentiles and peace to those who were near the Jew so one of the beautiful truths of the gospel is that God doesn't just forgive us of our sin he wants to give his people rest he wants to give his people joy He wants to give his people peace in Christ. A couple questions along those lines, and then we'll end. Um, You may not yet be a believer in Jesus yet in this room, and I expect and hope that there are people in this room who have not yet trusted in Jesus. And maybe you came into this room thinking that you were a Christian, and maybe by God's kind providence, he has sort of, he's just shown you. He has seen fit to right now, on this day, in this moment, open your eyes to let you see that you have not trusted in Jesus. You're trusting in some sort of self-made scaffolding, some sort of man-made sort of wall, ladder that you're propping yourself up on. And he's showing you even right now that you've never really trusted in his work. You've trusted in your own. Here, here's how you can have peace. You feel cut off and you're without hope right now. You're thinking that Christianity was, was maybe just some secret formula whereby you know, you'd improve your life a little bit. The good news is is that you can have peace with God as well by trusting in Christ and not yourself. And and if you're even thinking along those lines right now, I think that's clear evidence that God is giving you spiritual eyes to see. I think that's clear evidence that God is giving you a new heart right now to trust in Him. You don't need to do anything. Don't get off of that wall to go build another one. What you need to do is just look to Jesus right now in whom and whom alone is true peace. For Christians in this room, uh, is the peace that this passage speaks of elusive to you? Why? Why, if it is elusive to you? I think that most of us kind of fluctuate between sort of two extremes. There's probably two types of people in here. There's those of us that are sort of bent towards legalism, and those of us that are bent towards kind of just total liberty, right? And so, you know, that's kind of the church. You know, you got people over here that just want, just want laws and regulations, and then you got people over here that's just all grace, you know? This tends to be the, the person who kind of grew up and, you know, in a kind of more fundamentalist church environment. They believe in Jesus, they've trusted in Him, but, you know, they're very legalistic. And this tends to be kind of the college kid who's trusting in Jesus but still wants to kind of dabble in the world. And both of those sort of extremes, they don't bring peace. The legalist doesn't have peace because they're up on this wall with binoculars trying to trying to look at anybody else who's not doing all that they think they should be doing. And when you're so focused on comparing yourself to everybody else, man, that is exhausting. That is so exhausting. And, and maybe to you, if you're a Christian that's just sort of bent towards legalism today, that there's the... The word of Christ would come to your heart right now and just say, get off the scaffolding, man. Get off the wall. Put down your binoculars. I'm trying to snoop everybody else out and just receive peace. And to the, to the person who's over here on the other extreme, who's, who's wanting to kind of confess Christianity, but still kind of have these little pockets of their life that are not yet yielded to him. And do, do you realize that just how... Just how difficult it is to live like that, and what you're just buying into a lie that that says that you you've got to sort of claim christ for some eternal destiny but now you can kind of go do your little thing and i think i think a lot of our young military guys are particularly vulnerable to this man because you're living in this time in your life where you're here at fort benning for six months to a year you can kind of come to church you can put on the church face you can go back out to benning you can do your thing you can go to your unit your young some sharp lieutenant or enlisted guy and you can kind of do what you want because you're not in community and you can sort of grow into this sort of very dangerous rut spiritually where you can kind of look like a Christian in certain aspects of your life, but then over here you can do whatever you kind of want to do, and then you know you shouldn't do it, but there's no accountability in that situation, and you run back and you just keep crying, grace, grace, grace. Friends, do you realize how, how, how unbiblical that way is to live and actually how that just doesn't give you peace? It just heaps up guilt and condemnation on you. Man, I lived like that as a young lieutenant in your very shoes 20 years ago. And let me tell you, there is no peace in that. The good news of the gospel is Jesus comes to give you all that you need not to cut off joy from you so you can't go sow your wild oats, but to give you true joy and rest and peace in Him because the way that He has, the way that he has established for us is so much better than any broken counterfeit of the flesh the final sort of pendulum that we swing is those people that are in this room and I think we all sort of fall into this category at times some of us are just anxious we, we kind of swing between the pendulum of being anxious and complacent we're just anxious, we're nervous we just wonder whether or not you know God is for us we wonder whether or not people love us whether we're accepted and then some of us are just just kind of complacent, you know, lazy Christians. And I think that this text wants to come and hit us right square in the heart and speak to us about peace. For those, us, for those of us that are anxious, is there some idol in your heart that still holds power? That robs you of your peace? Is it the performance of your child? The love of a friend? The acceptance of a peer group, the achievement of some career. And the gospel comes to break down that wall, that scaffolding, that merit machine, and to give us peace. To the complacent, you realize that the grace of God and the peace of God isn't just given to you so that you can sit back and do nothing. Go on vacation and recreate yourself into spiritual uselessness. But the peace of God is given to you. The grace of God is given to you. The abolishing work of Christ, breaking down the separation between God and man, is given to you so that you might make much of Jesus in your life by serving the church, by serving the needs of the gospel, making much of Jesus in your life. I think all of us fluctuate between both extremes, legalism, liberty, anxiousness, complacency, and the good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes to be our peace. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we now come to respond to your word, I pray for a few things. First, I pray for non-Christians in this room people that have not yet believed in Jesus. Some that may have come into this room realizing they were not yet Christians, others that maybe it's become clear to them in this past hour that they are not. Lord, I can't persuade them into trusting in you. I can't hold out some promise of some functional, comfortable life here that will attract them to a more pragmatic experience of life here on this earth. I can't do that. And if I tried to do that, that would, be, that would be false advertising. But Lord, you alone can cause a person to come back to life so that they can see you. And Lord, I pray that if there's a person in this room who's not yet trusted in Jesus, they're trusting in all sorts of other things. Lord, would you help them right now? Would you give them a new heart so that they can trust in you and have peace in Christ? Father, for my brothers and sisters who are already Christians in this room, those of us that swing between the extremes of legalism and liberty and anxiousness and complacency. Lord, would you help us all to climb down off of these walls that we prop ourselves up on? This merit machine that's obliterated in pieces at the cross and and even if we're Even if we're believers in Jesus, it's like we're so silly sometimes. We're just scurrying around at the foot of the cross trying to put back together this machine of self-righteousness that somehow makes us feel good about ourselves. God, would would you let us just sort of drop the little pieces of the broken down wall that we want to reconstruct? would you reorient our hearts so that we can find peace in Jesus peace in Jesus and Lord as this church pursues that type of humility both along ethnic lines and cultural lines theological lines God would you just create in us a pervasive radical gospel driven humility so that you can make much of yourself through the way the people of Crosspoint live out these words. Lord, I pray that you would do this for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.